Hi everyone, this is Working Title, the podcast where we, four intrepid, handsome, intelligent, and entirely fraudulent reviewers, watch and review IMDb's top 250 English language movies as of November 2019, going from bottom to top. So watch along with us, and... I am not a gun. I'm family. And the rest of my notes are dog shit. Our last prompt was pretty good. What vice would you rewrite into this movie instead of Chainsmoking? Dude, that was fucking hilarious. (laughs) Was it Mike who wanted him to rail coke? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I loved how we kind of... I mean, we. I think we did a good job, but I think we kind of shit on that movie a lot, and then we're like, "Yeah, excellent movie. See it." <laughs> we do that a lot. We're like, nothing makes sense. Plot's kind of thin. Great movie though. That's what this podcast has become: is we just shit on the movie, and then suddenly we're like, "Yeah, it was great. <laughs> well, I recommend best of it. all time. Number one. <laughs> Hated Maltese Falcon. Number. Two. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So I can. You can tell it immediately if we're going to put a movie in the middle, because if we start off with like, I had a problem with this or I had a problem with that, it's a middle movie. But if we nothing but just like praise the movie the entire time, you know, it's like, cause I don't think her, we ever shit on. We just crack jokes within it, but we never had a shit on. I mean, I'm about to shit on this movie too. So uh, let's get <laughs> it's a middle movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Anyway, so welcome back to episode 44, not counting specials, which we still need to follow up on. Like I said last time, of uh, working title, the podcast where we, re- where we review the top 250 movies in English on IMDb. And uh, yeah, we're uh, taking a step back to a sort of a, a little, um, Kind of to animated zone, I guess. We did a lot at the start. We haven't had one in a while. Uh, whew. So what are we talking about this week? Uh, we're back to Brad Bird. We're talking about The Iron Giant, a 1999 sci-fi film. Um, it is kind of an interesting case because, as I recall, it wasn't super successful in theaters, and it didn't really get a following until it kind of came out on, I guess at that time, VHS. Um so, yeah, and it, it was, uh, I think, uh, Brad Bird, uh, Pixar fame, right? Uh, the Incredibles, etc. cetera. Um, his directorial debut, and it has the voices of Jennifer Aniston, Harry Connick Jr., Vin Diesel, kind of. Um, <laughs> Vin Diesel uh, does the range that he has in this film. Yeah, Vin Diesel shows off his range. Um, yeah, and uh, it is a book based on, or is a, a movie based off of like a, a children's story about uh an iron giant that uh crashes into earth from the sky and you know the sort of moral story there the movie diverges i think enough from the book that we probably don't need to spend tons of time talking about what's in the book well, that's good because i don't even know anything about the book yeah maybe I we can say i don't read real quick Mike, as the as the plot man, did you watch the signature edition or the regular edition? The regular one. I knew there was a different one. I remember seeing there were scenes that weren't in this one, right? Yeah. So the signature oh, edition crazy, had then. two. Yeah, it had two additional scenes and then one like edit or something like did, that. Did oh, the well, additional well, scene? Did it show the robots planet with like a bunch of them? Yeah. Yes, I. I, uh, I, was, uh, I, I swear that I fucking seen something before. And after I watched, I just watched it today, and so I was does like, that "This mean is." I just- saw the original. I thought I, like, dreamt up the other portions of it. If you didn't see the uh, dream 
sequence of the robot, then you did not watch the signature edition. Yeah, no, I did I, not I, see I, the dream sequence. Okay, yeah. that'll be I interesting. I do remember okay. that scene though, weirdly. Yeah, me too. I didn't. I but it's been so long since I've seen this movie. I didn't remember if I'd made it up in my mind or not. Am I a gun? <laughs> <laughs> that might be the title of the episode. <laughs> Am I a gun? <laughs> I actually, June, I, what I did after I watched it just barely was I, I Googled if there was an Iron Giant 2 because I thought maybe there was a sequel that maybe that scene was in, but there's no Iron Giant 2. Yeah, so we'll, I'll, get, I'll get into that because I did watch the Signature Edition uh, without knowing that there was a difference. It was just the one that was available to rent on Prime. So, <laughs> See, I got, I got the free one. Uh, yeah, I don't do ads. So I did, <laughs> I did the one with ads. I think I, where did I watch it? It was free for me. Anyway. I think I watched it on HBO Max. I don't remember. Anyway, um, I'm interested to hear what those scenes were because I did. I have not heard of that. Okay. I'll sequence them in uh, with the plot summary, and we'll uh, yeah. we'll uh, release a signature edition of the podcast where we talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the movie is about a giant iron man who sort of descends to earth and makes friends with this uh, boy in Maine. In the middle of the Red Scare in the United States and sort of a, a story of acceptance and morality and stuff like that, right? Like it's it's like a in the same way Incredibles is sort of like a kid's movie with like a moral this this it's kind of a moral tale. So uh what uh <laughs> um <laughs> I just realized I didn't think of anything for the prompt. <laughs> we'll put you last. Yeah, um, before we uh, get into it, right, like we like to do a little introduction of ourselves, and uh, this week to introduce the reviewers in the studio, the question we will all answer is what, you know, fictional character or book or comic or movie or whatever. So in the movie, Hogarth presents to uh, the Iron Giant the comic book of Superman as sort of like a uh, ideal and like a you're like Superman, you know, and Superman always does the right thing. You know, what... What fictional character, or book, or comic, or movie would we show to um, the robot? As oh, it has uh, to be fictional. Well, it, up up to you. It, it, <laughs> some what media would you give to the robot? Right. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I, I guess I'll go first since you don't have one yet. I might have missed the boat on this one. <laughs> I just say what you got. I'm sure it'll be funny. Go ahead, Mike. Explain. Um. So I'm Mike, and I would show uh. The giant Fight Club's Tyler Durden, just so God I can get an anarchistic, <laughs> anarchi- anarchist giant robot. Well, I guess I won't show him the Communist Manifesto now. I'll scratch that one off my list. It's a little yeah. close to- <laughs> the robot talking about uh, the things we own end up owning us. <laughs> it's meta. He starts. He starts collecting soap. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty good. Who's up next? I'll go. So I apologize in advance. This is going to be long, but it's because (laughs) I'm I'm going to read you the synopsis of this book. Um, So I'm June. I have the easy answer. I would I would read the Iron Giant, the book, The Iron Man by British poet laureate Ted Hughes, (laughs) of which this film was based on. Sounds like a cop out, but let me let me read you the synopsis from Wikipedia. The Iron Man arrives seemingly from nowhere, and his appearance is described in detail. To survive, he feeds on local farm equipment. Pretty, you know, similar to the movie. When the farmhands discover their destroyed tractors, 
A trap is set consisting of a covered pit on which a red lorry is set as bait. Hogarth, a local boy, lures the Iron Man to the trap, it's, which succeeds. The Iron Man is buried alive. The next spring, the Iron Man digs himself free of the pit. To keep him out of the way, Hogarth brings the Iron Man to a scrap heap to feast. The Iron Man promises to not cause further trouble for the locals as long as no one troubles him. Time passes, and the Iron Man is treated as merely another member of the community. However, astronomers monitoring the sky make a frightening new discovery. An enormous space being resembling a dragon moving from orbit to land on Earth. This movie sounds badass. <laughs> the creature, soon to be dubbed Space Bat Angel Dragon, <laughs> crashes heavily on Australia, which it is large enough to cover the whole of, and demands that humanity provide him with food. This is fucking metal <laughs> terrified humans send their armies to destroy the dragon but it remains unharmed when the iron man hears of this global threat he allows himself to be disassembled and transported to australia where he challenges the creature to a contest of strength if the iron man can withstand the heat of burning petroleum longer than the creature can withstand the heat of the sun the creature must obey the iron man's commands forevermore if the Iron Man melts or is afraid of melting before the space being undergoes or fears pain in the sun, the creature has permission to devour the whole Earth. After playing this game for two rounds, the dragon is so badly burned that he no longer appears physically frightening. The Iron Man, by contrast, has only a deformed earlobe to show for his pains. The alien creature admits defeat. When asked why he came to Earth, the dragon reveals that he is a peaceful star spirit who experienced excitement about the ongoing sights and sounds produced by the violent warfare of humanity. Sweet Jesus. In his own life, he was a singer of the music of the spheres, the harmony of his kind that keeps the cosmos in balance and stable equi equilibrium. The Iron Man orders the dragon to sing the inhabitants of Earth flying just behind the sunset to help soothe humanity toward a sense of peace. The beauty of his music distracts the population from its egocentrism and tendency to fight, causing the first worldwide lasting peace. What? I think, I th I think they deviated from the source material, Tad. <laughs> now, w what are you hoping the Iron Giant will learn from reading this? <laughs> He just wants him to know where he came from. <laughs> that is the most meth-induced book. I, I started this prompt thinking it would be the easy, like, oh, it'll just learn about itself. And then I read the synopsis, and I was like, oh my god, this is gold. <laughs> uh, this, this way, the Iron Giant will protect us from Space Bat Angel Dragon. That sounds Who's actually like... A good guy. What, a, a noble was, task. What was the band? Oh, Dragon Force. That sounds like one of their songs. <laughs> it does sound like a dope metal band. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're Space Bad Angel Dragon. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Why are you playing The Devil Went Down to Georgia? <laughs> it was with Harmony. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. That was excellent. I need to read so, that book. Yeah, so this uh, movie is like not I just like did. that book. <laughs> All right, I don't know how to follow that one, but uh, <laughs> my name is Shane, and I would uh, give him rich dad, poor dad, <laughs> <laughs> so that he can understand the importance of passive income. <laughs> <laughs> so he can not only be physically a giant, but a financial giant. <laughs>
Oh, that is all. <laughs> Dividends. <laughs> <laughs> he just get, instead of shooting at guns, he destroys depreciating uh, assets. <laughs> yeah, he overinflates the U.S. economy, and that's how he destroys America. <laughs> <laughs> he was a Russian plant. He just <laughs> you, uh, You've inspired an even better answer in me, Shane. My name's Jack. Originally, I was going to say the Passion of the Christ, but now, <laughs> God, <laughs> and now I'm going to get him a subscription to Better Homes and Gardens. <laughs> Let's see if Martha Stewart can uh, can teach him a thing or two. Oh. Um, okay, all right, so... Uh, Why would he choose petroleum, and, and so, wouldn't it be a heat source of equal value? Why would, the dragon ag- Why would the dragon agree to something that's way hotter? It's also a super <laughs> high-stakes bet. It's like, hmm, if I lose, you can eat the whole world. Hold on a second, did we, did we say he could bet that? No, wait, who <laughs> made this metal man speak for us? <laughs> that that third portion of the of that summary was where it just, like, you know it was British. Because it's like, oh, it challenges the creature to a contest of strength. Of wits. <laughs> like, what the and That H- Hogarth now makes more sense, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My literally first line was, Hogarth? The fuck? I did like that they did make fun of that, but we'll get into yeah. that. But okay, yeah. All right. Well, let's pitter patter. Let's get at her. Uh, tell us about the movie, Mike. Uh, so we start in uh, this town in Maine. That it's, uh, I think it's October or yeah. So October 1957. During a storm, this uh, giant meteor kind of falls to earth uh, while this fisherman is is fighting this giant storm, trying to find this lighthouse. The fisherman sees this meteor ball splash into the ocean. And a few moments later, uh, it appears that there, he could see the lighthouse with these giant uh, beams of light uh, that turn into two eyes. And the fishing boat smashes into the side of what appears to be a giant metal uh, man that had just fallen from the sky. Go to the next day. We start with a young boy whose name is Hogarth Hughes uh, at his mom's diner. And he had just come in with a box with a, with a little animal in it. And he's trying to convince his mom to keep this as a pet. This kind of introduces... Hogarth being this kind of, I don't know, he collects animals. We kind of establish his backstory. And uh, this squirrel gets loose and starts kind of running th- uh, through the diner while Hogarth kind of tries to track it down and find it. It, it crawls up the leg of uh, the next uh, main kind of character in the film who uh, forgot his name already. Been only 30 minutes since I watched this movie. Hogarth um, Hughes? No, Hogarth Hughes is the, is the kid, right? Right. So it's oh, this other guy. Yeah. It's the it's oh, the art guy. Oh, Dean. 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 Dean, yeah. And, and so Hogart, Hogart meets this man named Dean, who he looks to be an artist. And he uh, he's there in the diner um, drinking coffee. And we overhear the story of the fisherman in the booth over kind of uh, talking to a, a group of people, trying to convince them that he had seen this giant monster. And they're laughing at him and calling him a drunk and kind of blowing him off and not believing his story. Um, Dean... He leans over and he says that he saw the same thing and they can collaborate with these this fisherman's story, but they kind of laugh at him as well. Uh, so he's kind of a, a, a you know outsider as well. Anyways, uh, chaos ensues. This uh, squirrel goes up his leg and you know he everything kind of goes to shit in his diner and um, it's not really important. But we've now established uh, Hogarth and his mom, who is this? She's this hardworking uh, hostess or sorry, um, server at this diner uh, in in the nineteen fifties. 
the incident uh, that that the fisherman saw, the, that we saw the giant, he, he contacted the government, and the government decided to send out uh, just a single agent. Uh, his name was Kent uh, Mansley to this uh, to the town to investigate. And Kent Mansley, he's this I don't know, he's a xenophobic guy, very suspicious, but at the, of of foreign countries and Russia, like you said during the intro, this during the Red Scare. Um, so everybody's you know kind of a, a little bit paranoid about odd things happening. However, Kent doesn't really believe it as well. I mean, it's it's a little bit far fetched. Uh, but anyways, he's there to kind of investigate this town. That night, Hogarth, while he's at home, his mom calls and says that she's going to be working late, which I like, I'm curious to say, like, what, what kind of a diner is she working at where she's not coming home until like four or five in the morning? Um, that's besides the point. I think she has a side <laughs> job. But anyways, so, so Hogarth. Hogarth. Oh my God. <laughs> you know what? After hearing the synopsis of the book, Mike might not be far off here. <laughs> so might, Hogarth's at home alone. dark. <laughs> no, it's just realistic. I mean, it's multiple times throughout the film that she's not. She, I don't think she ever comes home on time any of the nights throughout this entire movie. But besides the point, that night Hogarth's at home and he's watching some scary movies and eating some snacks. What he's told not to do, and uh, suddenly the uh, reception on his TV cuts out. So he he goes up to investigate on the roof and he finds that uh, his uh, TV antenna has been snapped off and he, there's. Uh, tracks leading out of his yard and a broken fence and like things have been knocked down again I don't know why the hell he couldn't hear this but something that kind of rampaged through his yard so hearing the story at the diner from the fisherman about the the monster and you know watching scary movies and being a little kid he 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 thinks it's aliens from another planet so he he goes downstairs gets his uh, BB gun tapes a flashlight to it flashlight completely covers the end of his gun so he wouldn't be able to do anything if he shot it and puts on like a little army helmet and goes off, goes off into the woods to try to find uh, these aliens or that you know whatever went through his yard. He gets to this, it's like a power station that he finds out in the woods and uh, following the tracks of this of the giant. And the giant like appears, it shows itself, and it starts eating the metal of the TV station while Hogarth kind of watches from a distance. As it stands up, it gets wrapped up. The giant gets wrapped up in some power lines and starts to become electrocuted. So Hogarth, first he runs away, but then he kind of stops himself and he t- turns back because we saw that at the beginning. He's an like empathetic guy, right? He wants pets and, and that kind of shit. He goes back and he grabs the giant shutoff switch that this uh, um, power station has and he, sw- and he switches it to off, which saves the giant from uh, being electrocuted. After that, he, he runs back home. His mom, at this point... She is now back from her second job and she finds that he's not in his bed. So she goes out looking for him as well. And she kind of catches up to him halfway down the road as he's running home. And and he's trying to tell his mom that he just saw this giant metal monster. And the mom kind of blows him off as just being a dumb kid, uh, classic trope. And uh, they they go home not believing uh, that Hogarth saw anything and that he's just out late and ate too many snacks and watched too many scary movies. And then... um, and then we get to that's when uh, this Kent Mansley shows up uh, around the, the the next day. He comes into town, um, government agent being sent in to investigate what this crazy old man was talking about. While he's there, he he goes up to the the power station and they're looking at kind of the wreckage. And he doesn't believe it's it's a real threat. He thinks it's just you know ramblings of of a, of a small town and you know big things don't happen in small towns. 
after he investigates the TV or sorry, the power station, he's going back to his car to give a report. Uh, and he sees that uh, there's a broken gun on the ground. And it was kind of like the only evidence they have that somebody's there. And it's, it was Hogarth's um, BB gun that he dropped the night before. And when the monster had stepped on it, kind of smashed it up. But on the, the butt of the gun, it has a little bit of his, his first and last name, but not enough to kind of tell what the name is. And like Shane said, Hogarth is, is an odd name. So it's, you know, unimportant at the time, at least to um, Kent. Um, but getting back in his car, though, uh, he doesn't realize when he jumps in the front seat that the uh, there's a giant bite out of his car. Uh, uh, and so, um, unsurprisingly, he freaks out that something had taken a bite out of his car and uh, runs back to the people, try to get them to come back and take a look. And, and his car's gone at that point. So now, so now Kent's he's he's on board with there's something big happening in this little town. And now it's it's he's trying to investigate further to try to figure out uh, more information about about the giant. So I do like in this that I don't know if it's like a Brad Birdism or maybe just an animated. I mean, I don't know, but I see a lot. There's a lot of um, setups that are delivered on very well throughout the whole film. You met, you know, you mentioned the name on the on the buttstock of the the BB gun, even the like shut off giant shut off switch that he uses to kill the power to save the robot comes up later. And then even little things like the mom tells Hogarth to not, no, don't watch scary movies. Like don't eat junk food. And the fact that they call back to that of like, Oh, that's why he's imagining giant fucking robots and stuff. Uh, it, really good. And we see that throughout the rest of the film too. Lots of setups and they deliver on it very well. Yeah, I yeah. agree. And as far as the plot goes, the, the beginning of it kind of showing the sympathy or empathy that this kid has leads to the fact that he's the only one that doesn't initially, I mean, he panics when he first sees the giant. Uh, but like th throughout the introduction is he's getting to know the giant. He starts to, even though it's this big towering, scary thing to everybody else, to this kid, he sees that it's actually nice and docile and, and it's almost like a, a ch has like a child's mind. Um, and that's why he starts to kind of befriend it, trying to bring it metal. And he, um, you know, stakes out in the woods with a piece of metal, try to get a photo of it. And then, once he, you know, I think he falls asleep or something, the giant kind of sneaks up behind him and doesn't attack him or hurt him. It just starts to kind of mimic him. And that's how he starts to become friends with the, the, the giant um, up until the point where the giant won't. It'll just kind of it's like a puppy, right? It's following him home and he can't get it to not follow him. And then, you know, that's where the, this this train shows up. Right. And the, as he's going across the train tracks right before he gets home, the giant stops and he takes a big bite out of the train tracks. And Hogarth freaks out and says, you got to put it back because then a train starts to come down the rail. And uh, as he's fixing the train tracks, the giant, the train slams into his head and like breaks him up into a bunch of pieces, which then Hogarth finds out that the giant has this ability to kind of self-repair itself. Sets up one thing that pays off later. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> this movie, I, I liked it more on the back half, but that's because for probably the first 15 minutes of this movie, the animation scared me. <laughs> like the people are creepy looking. You get used to it after a little while. But initially, like, I don't know, their eyes are so dead. <laughs> it's, just, it's, it's it's maybe, you know, it's just the animation of the times and like just the, that style. Everyone just moves weird and their proportions are weird. I don't know. It it took me a minute to get over that. But once I got over that, I, I definitely started to enjoy things more. I mean, um, I was watching it and thinking how much better an animated movie ages than... CGI we've seen. I, I didn't find the oh, yeah. animation particularly egregious in it. It felt like it was kind of ca sort of capturing like a 50s style 
um, vibe, I guess. So oh, I didn't yeah. find it bothersome at all, but... I was very you know. impressed by it because, I mean, I'm sure like you all, I also last time I saw this, I was like seven. So um, <laughs> I was surprised it because I was expecting like kind of the OG Disney Snow White feel kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. but like the animation was really good for 99. I think um, I think Brad Bird loves the 50s, you know, like in The Incredibles, he kind of sets the golden age around that time as well. Yeah. Yeah. The man's it, just really into the 1950s. I think it's a great period for stuff because it's almost it this almost has a comic book kind of feel to it, um, and he definitely references comic books throughout it. Uh, but the, the the art design and the style definitely had that nineteen fifties atomic Atomic Man, you know what I mean? Like those old school robots from outer space kind of comic books that they that were really prevalent during the fifties. And it, it plays. You can see. I love when they put some humor in there that you know no kid's gonna get, but like. He's watching the scary movie about the brain that eats people or whatever. And the doctor's like, hi there. Yes, it's a dangerous brain and everything. So your place or mine? <laughs> like, <laughs> and I was like, wait, did that doctor just hit on? The, like in, in half that movie is the doctor like hitting on his assistant and then he gets eaten by the monster or whatever. But I was laughing so hard at that. <laughs> Brad Bird did uh, Tomorrowland as well. That was like set in the 60s, I think. Oh, Tomorrowland. Yeah, that's right. Why does that sound so familiar? What are... George Clooney. Seen... Oh, uh, yeah. I don't think I saw it, but I I vaguely remember it. This first section has the first uh, additional scene from the uh, whatever cut. But, Director uh, special th- cut? Yeah, the signature edition or whatever. But I think it makes more sense for me to cover these at the end. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. On Mike's point about uh, being from the 50s, it's just funny to kind of view... Especially being, uh, in all honesty, a California born and raised, uh, to just see a. How old is Hogarth? Nine. Like, okay, so I got that right. But I was like, you know, just to see a nine year old that has basically a militia starter kit in his house <laughs> that he has access to at any time. I was like, I kind God. of glossed over it when I was when I was going through the plot there. But did you notice that that flashlight he was using covered up the muzzle of that gun? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what an idiot. <laughs> uh does anyone did anyone get super strong uh syndrome from incredibles vibes off of the cia government agent oh oh he yeah, he, he was the, the... the villain from incredibles yeah like the acting style was so similar that i had to oh, like yeah. go and see if like it was the same voice actor which it wasn't yeah like no. as a char- yeah i see what you're saying yeah I, the... I, I see that is the bad guy from Happy Gilmore, but uh, <laughs> he always plays a bad guy. <laughs> uh, it's very interesting the the Cold War tie-ins and Sputnik and all that. Real clever as as it goes with I don't know that kind of insane amount of fear people were living with at, at that time for against Russia. It's a setting that really lends itself to the story. I think real weird, ba- like because obviously the, as we learned, the book has nothing to do with that. But. I, I like. Uh... I like these 1950s kind of films because there was a they, they portray a feeling that the world had just barely discovered atomic power and there was this huge turning point for um, science and technology and 50s films were all about those you know old looking to us now old looking technology but to them was this weird futuristic almost um, like fallout kind of a uh, kind of strange technology they had going on there I like those type of like movies that show 
the, the weird inventions that they were trying to come up with during the 50s. Well, this movie does a good way because they kind of humanize the bad guy a little bit. And then he just goes like, and that's why we kill everything. But um, it's interesting to think that people in the 50s, and I think that's kind of the interesting about that whole time period, is they are now learning how to live with the idea that the world could end at any moment. And we, as people in 2022, are just acclimatized to apocalyptic events. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it's just you know, another day at the beach, you know, the beach that's polluted and poisoned and actively killing everything in it. You know, like, we just don't care anymore. <laughs> in in this universe of this movie, too, like, the, what, would you say it was 1957 or something like that? Yeah. That's like on the coattails of the war, the original War of the Worlds and stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Cool setting. I have some gripes though. Let's hear them. They're they're character gripes, um, which I've come to realize it's not so much complaining about the movie, but characters' actions in the movie, which is hilarious. But, <laughs> yes, there's a lot um, of issues with actions taken. <laughs> so, Hogarth he climbs on his roof to fix his antenna and sees a trail of just like shit. A, a shit storm has come through. And torn into the woods, knocked down trees and everything. Which So it's an easy trail for him to follow. And when mom finds him, we're just going to ignore the fact that there's just a like, tornado <laughs> that just went through. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, this, is a, this is a town of eyes wide shut. Like, the, the, this yeah. monster is shaking the ground as it walks around. And nobody, like, it answers the age old question. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around, apparently it makes no fucking noise. You have to see it in order to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> Hogarth definitely graduated from the Prometheus school of running away from things in that <laughs> early scene, which is like <laughs> the trope that gets me in movies. No lateral movement. Yeah, like some <laughs> a, an enormously tall thing is falling over and you're running like along underneath it instead of stepping six feet to the other side. I also had a gripe with and I guess he has to become okay with it at some point, but he became he was very quickly not scared of a giant monster in the woods. You know? I don't know. Like I mean he has to eventually for the story to happen, but I think there was an adequate time of of fear. It was really what cuz it, it got to a point where he just like was like, "Yeah, I, I'm going to die now." And then when it didn't kill him, I think that's when it like worked hmm. out. It's a young age to accept your death. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if we're going to stay on the gripe train, and obviously this is a kid's movie, and I get that death in a kid's movie is not a good thing, but the sheer ability for the human beings to withstand so much traumatic like trauma to their, themselves in this film, like, this, he, he, he derails a train, and yeah. the conductor's fine. Like, the guy crashes a boat and gets swept up onto raging rocks in the ocean, and he's cool, too. Um, a little bit later, two kids fall from the top of a tower and the giant saves him, saves the kids, but he does it that, you know, I mean, Superman yeah. style, like nine where, stories down. Yeah, they already yeah. fell and it's a metal hand they fall into. <laughs> no problems there. That like, is moving at 170 miles an hour into them. Like, it's like and the giant crash from 30,000 feet into the ground and no issues with Hodar. He's he's like just knocked unconscious. But a couple guys shoot a deer, and they're the bad guys. The, it's, it's a Bambi tie-in. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, the, the kids fall from that building. And instead of falling, they just get hit by a car on the way down. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. And they all die of nuclear radiation later, but we'll we'll discuss that later. <laughs> That's why only Vin Diesel could play. God damn it. I, I'm so sick of that train of like, oh, do you know Vin Diesel voiced this? Where he just goes, ugh. Like that's like what is that three characters now he's done that or every Groot? character yeah. he's ever played? <laughs> oh god. This was a year after Saving Private Ryan, I think. Yeah. Uh would have been when did Saving Private Ryan come out? Uh, I'm pretty sure it was 98. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I'm looking at Vin Diesel's filmography now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny. I mean, good on I Vin mean, Diesel for easy paychecks. I mean, his big like debut in Saving Private Ryan, and then he went straight into this movie, and then after that, it was all the Riddicks and the Fast and Furious and Triple yeah. X's. The golden years. I would say his role in Saving Private Ryan was like a big debut. I mean, he got it, he was it in was. like two scenes, and then he got shot. He was in a Spielberg it. movie. Yeah, and <laughs> so Shane, Shane and I watched his uh we his like this. acting. Uh, what do you call that when you like submit your? acting resume I don't, I don't fucking know he filmed he, he made a he made a fucking yeah. short film and he had like crazy amounts of range it was actually really good it's really huh. good you're like is this vin diesel like what happened to vin diesel <laughs> they just typecast him into one at the end huh yeah, yeah well, i'm pretty sure spielberg saw that shit and was like i'm making this dope war movie uh you should have a minor cameo in it i guess huh. and then that like kick-started his career there you go and then he discovered he could just grunt and work out <laughs> <laughs> and then eventually just stop working out <laughs> I mean, it happens to us all at one point yeah. uh, is there anything else in the beginning we're missing here oh I like the reference to duck and cover it gets brought in a lot to- another thing that is set up and paid off a few times huge 1950s trope yeah. right like hide under your desk and you're going to survive a nuclear fallout yeah, yeah. like uh, and I, I do like the um the story element of this where it's like it's not quite like old yeller but it's like that kind of story of just like a young boy <laughs> with not a lot of friends and like his dog you know like where the red fern grows or something like that and i keep referencing these stories where the endings are never very happy yeah <laughs> i always i always get the the do you guys also feel like the 1950s were just the, the time period of American culture when the American dream was prevalent, but nobody really had anything important to do at any time during their lives? Like, I feel like everybody during the 1950s were just existing as human beings. <laughs> they weren't doing anything important besides that. <laughs> Other than inventing atomic power. And, uh, I'm just saying, the in these movies, I yeah. really feel like, like you go to these small towns and, and there's, what is... What is so important? Like, everybody just feels unimportant. They're just making sandwiches and buying two-cent soda pop. Right. At, at least this time, I don't think Mike's going to offend our 90-year-old listeners, so... <laughs> you think we're good. son of a bitch! <laughs> <laughs> Go back to the lawyer talk! We were going to lose that a listener anyways in months. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Wow. Uh, last thing I'll say about this section is because um, I, I Shane mentioned it before. Because I too said like, what kind of fucking name is Hogarth? <laughs> and then uh, Kent Mansley 
uh, says the same thing in the movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, was, I was happy that he like, they lampshaded that. a bit. I know I yeah. crossed uh, out. I crossed out my note because I was like, "Well, shit!" Now I get, the movie referenced it already. So um, one one thing too, just fifties note. I can only assume the town is named after Norman Rockwell, quintessential fifties oh. Americana thing. I, it, it's not like it's a subtle, deep reference, but it contributes to the the fifties vibe. On a trivial trivia note. It's the best kind of trivia. Rockwell is a fictional town, but in the opening scene, the sailor, he sends out a like SOS with his coordinates, and the coordinates that he gives correspond to Addison, Maine, in reality. So they went as far as to put it in the same state. Hmm. Huh. Well, fun. I mean, I feel like it would be a little weird if like he sent out his co- coordinates and he was in the Persian Gulf or something. <laughs> Yemen. i was also thinking as he was like eating metal and stuff like that and i was like well that's that's good that he eats metal because this would be really weird if he was like fueled by organic material how does he poop (laughs) (laughs) he burns it inside of him he consumes a lot of metal there's no waste all right, um, I think we're starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel on this one. Yeah, <laughs> I was about to say all my notes now are about Dean, so we, let's let's get on with that. Jack, yeah. everybody poops. Everybody <laughs> poops. Um, all right, so after uh, Kent shows up in the town, he 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 puts together the 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 writing on the butt of that gun, so he he figures out it's Hogarth's, and he um, rents the room at their their little lodge to keep uh, kind of track of Hogarth and. and Attempts to get Hogarth to kind of spill the beans on where this robot is. Hogarth's still denying it, obviously. So Hogarth manages to get away from from Kentley, er, sorry, um, Kent, and he goes uh, to his barn where he uh, stashed the giant to hide out after the train incident. And the giant's kind of putting himself back together, and uh, he uh, he gets the giant to uh, at cover of night sneak over to the local scrapyard that's owned by uh, Dean, which is, who is the guy that we saw in the beginning at the diner with the squirrel up his pants. Hogarth and uh, the Iron Giant go to the scrapyard, and he starts to eat a bunch of food, and he accidentally sets off a car alarm, which triggers uh, Dean to come running outside to see what the commotion's all about. Hogarth manages to convince Dean that this uh, this giant is, is friendly and that he should be able to stay uh, at the scrapyard just to get, you know, eat some food. And, and then Hogarth will be back the next day to, I don't know, get him or whatever. And Dean admits to it uh, begrudgingly. And, and he spends the night at the scrapyard. And in the meantime, Hogarth goes back to his house where Kent is um, badgering him about the giant and trying to figure more stuff about this, trying to figure out what, you know, what, what Hogarth actually knows about the iron giant. A little bit later, Kent finds Hogarth's camera out in the woods that he had been using to try to snap a photo of the giant. He takes it back to the house and he develops the, the film role and he finds that in one of the films, Hogarth has taken a selfie with the giant and uh, he now uses that as evidence to alert the army who they weren't believing him either. He called the army a little bit earlier, tried to explain to them that, that there's something actually eating his car and the general told him unless he has hard proof or even like a photo that they can't mobilize the army to go out there and do anything for him. Uh, but now, however, he has the photo. So he uh, he he sends that to the army and the army's like, yeah, we're going to send some I don't know, National Guard over there who mobilize super quickly. Um, in the meantime, Kent t- asks Hogarth where they're keeping the giant and, and Hogarth um, says that he has it at the scrapyard. 
Uh, Kent kind of keeps him at house arrest overnight and watches him. Again, the mom is working late, uh, second job. And <laughs> he, uh, they both they both fall asleep while having like a stare down throughout the night, making sure that either one of them didn't leave the house. Hogarth manages to uh, sneak out early before Kent wakes up and, and warns Dean that the army's coming. The army shows up that morning at uh, the, the farmhouse and Hogarth, the mother, and Kent and uh, the general and all these troops, they go parading down the road in, in their in their vehicles to the scrapyard. And as they get there, Dean's coming out with, you know, his cup of coffee and they pull up and they demand to see where the robot is. And Dean acts a little bit nonchalant about it and says, oh, yeah, it's in the back. And so he takes him around the back and he opens up his back barn and inside they have the Iron Giant disguised as an art piece. Uh, that Dean has been using scrap metal throughout his scrapyard to do art pieces and, and whatnot. And they they trick uh, the general and Ken into thinking that it's just one of his art pieces that he's selling to some, I don't know, some art collector or something like that. Kent gets, uh, you know, fired by the general and, and as, they're, as they they decide they're pulling out and they think they get away with it uh, at this point. Oh, I forgot to talk about, there was also an important thing about this whole thing is the Iron Giant has a head, like, dent. He has a dent in his head for when he crashed. Mm-hmm. And this is causing him to have blacking, like, blackouts where he keeps... It almost goes into his original programming in and out of it. And uh, one of the one of the things that triggers this event is uh, when he is in danger. It's kind of a self-defense mechanism. And, and uh, earlier in the film, um, Hogarth and, and the Iron Giant, when they're hanging out and having a good time out in the woods... They uh, they see a deer and the uh, the Iron Giant kind of leans down and has a moment with this deer and then it's shot by hunters uh, and Hogarth then has to train or t- t- uh, teach the Iron Giant about uh, more or mortality and that guns kill and that the Iron Giant needs to be good um, you know and throughout the film he's really pushing this with the comic book Superman is kind of in our prompt we talked about that and so the Iron Giant he wants to be a good guy as far as his his child mind allows him to be. However, when he's in danger, he goes into defense mode and becomes a weapon or a gun. Jesus uh, Christ, it's just another Bourne movie. <laughs> <laughs> After the army uh, pulls out and Kent gets fired and they're they're still in town, but they're they're leaving. Hogarth's, Hogarth's hanging out with Iron Giant and he's playing around with like the little like ray, like ray gun that he has. And this sets off the giant's defense mechanism and the, he has blazers that shoot out of his eyes at Hogarth, and uh, they miss. But but then Dean tells the the giant that he needs to go away, that he's bad, he, he's a he's a he's a gun or whatever. And the giant doesn't want to be a gun, so he runs away. And as he's kind of running through the fields, it starts to snow, and uh, two little boys are sitting on top of the rooftop of downtown, and they have some binoculars, and they're, they've they've heard the rumors about the giant and the monster, and they're out there looking for it as well, and. They see across the field through their binoculars the uh, the Iron Giant walking across this field, which um, causes them to be leaning up against this railing that snaps, and they fall off the top of this this building and snag on this hook with their binocular strap. And dramatic scene where the giant comes running down in the middle of the town and catches these kids before they smack into the pavement, um, saving their lives. Uh, however, Kent in his Humvee, you know, well they don't have Humvees in his military. Uh, car driving out of town with all of the troops uh sees the iron giant in his rear view mirror and alerts them that there's a big giant and the army turns around and they uh they go back to town and and uh, immediately start attacking uh the iron giant um hogarth shows up with dean on the back of a motorcycle and tries to get everybody to stop but you know chaos ensues and giant tries to save hogarth and he ends up 
running from the military and some of his other technology kind of takes over and he starts flying around and shit and jets show up and boats show up and they're shooting bombs and everybody's losing their mind trying to kill the Iron Giant because they think he's bad uh, to the point where Kent tells the general that they need to they need to drop a nuclear bomb on top of the Iron Giant to stop it, which is fucking stupid. Uh, anyway, so they <laughs> they agree and they set this whole thing up and they, they're going to shoot this missile as soon as everybody gets out of the blast radius, which I'm pretty sure is a couple miles. But they're right there and... and they uh they they see that the iron the general sees that the iron giant has the giant has a uh, hogarth in his hands and and they he calls up the boat to stop the missile from launching and dean and mom kind of convince the general not the mom mostly dean convinces the general like it's a defense thing and then if they just stop shooting it'll be fine which they do did i miss a part where the fucking giant like rampaged i did yeah there's <laughs> a whole that. scene where where he uh it's pretty he, he, pretty he, badass he gets so he gets shot down out of the sky, right? The the giant when the the airplanes show up, and he crashes, and he thinks Hogarth's dead out in a field, and that causes his little dent to pop back out, and that puts him into annihilation mode, and he turns into this giant monster gun thing, and he's rampaging around and blowing up tanks, and Hogarth shows back up after not being dead, and that's calms him down, and that's the point where I was just barely at where the general calls off the attack, sees that it was just a defensive mechanism. Dean kind of explains the whole thing to him. And uh, Kent doesn't want it, though. He's he's lost his mind. And at the last second, he radios the boat with the nuclear warhead, and they fire the, uh, the, the nuke, uh, which goes up above the town. And everybody's kind of accepted the fact that they're going to die. And Kent tries to escape, but not able to. So they arrest him, and the, there's no way that anybody can get outside of the blast radius in time. Um, however, uh, the giant... In his last, uh, in the last moments before the the nuke hit, he puts Hogarth down and he rockets up into the sky like Superman and uh, sacrifices himself to save all the people and explodes into a giant uh, ball of of flame and and debris out, out in outer space. Um, and the last scene in the movie, which is who knows how long later, everybody looks the same age, so it can't be that long. Um, we see that uh, the general sent. Hogarth, the the only remains they could find of the giant, which was one of the screws, and uh, <laughs> that night the screw uh, starts to beep and turns on and climbs out the window and, and starts rolling away, uh, similar to when uh, earlier in the film the, the giant put himself back together, and that's the end of the movie. So here's a little piece of your dead friend, if you just want to <laughs> keep it around the house as a little memento. <laughs> <laughs> uh so you you, know, you you would think they would have sent that to like Roswell where they're going to study it and try to figure out what kind of alloys is. Nope, they just gave it to a kid in Maine. There's a lot of issues with with the general <laughs> character. Um I'm going to rewind back to the beginning of your synopsis with uh, the introduction, not the introduction of Dean, but like when the giant and him all meet Dean, right? Uh-huh. And this is all because we just watched La La Land, and so as soon as we go into Dean's house, I'm just like, oh, jeez. Harry Connick Jr., he sounds oddly familiar to Ryan Gosling. Correct me if I'm wrong, I'm pretty sure Harry Connick Jr. is like a big singer, right? You go into his house, and he's not only is he a junkyard artist, but he has jazz records everywhere. They make a song, and he's going to think of him when he plays the piano key, and they're going to think of the life they could have had this rabbit hole of dean also accepts this giant does dean do heroin because he listens to a lot of jazz like maybe he's a heroin addict in the junkyard thanks thanks for taking us on this journey with you shane (laughs) 
Dean does heroin. <laughs> June's being awfully quiet. This is all going right in the dumpster. You hundred percent. Damn it. Yeah, it didn't. It didn't take a lot of spin, which is good. It, it didn't. No, I really thought literally he was, nobody else in the world thought that it would. I thought he was at least going to explain jazz, and he didn't. You know, thankfully, when when you said, I think it was, you said earlier that the second half was really where that you what you liked about the film, right? Mm-hmm. So the second half for me was more boring than the first half. I liked the we, I would, when you said that. I was getting up and like doing other stuff during the second half of this film. It's almost got too boring. <laughs> I don't know. I liked it. The most emotional scenes are in the second half. And I like the boy and his dog scenes. You know, like he gets in the car and he somehow doesn't die from the extreme G-forces generated by the giant spinning. Um, <laughs> and then Dude, like... when I saw that scene, I referenced back to Mike in the Avengers podcast. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, he's got like 10 G right there. This movie scratches a lot of issues that we had in earlier podcasts. But <laughs> um, and like the scene where they're at the lake together and he like cannonballs in and doesn't seem to flood the town but <laughs> i feel like that they wouldn't notice that right there's a lot of things i feel like they would have noticed with this lumbering idiot yeah it's around. not like the, the giant was never at any point being sneaky it just stands straight up and walks in lines like how yeah. nobody noticed this thing is amazing yeah but i i enjoyed that stuff i kent mansley was a little much for me i know you need a villain and, like, he's just, I don't know. I, I guess it's a kid's film. You have to have those characters. He, well, he is I mean, a very good, like, kid's film villain. Yeah you, yeah. you need black and white. Like, this is the bad guy, and he is a bad guy because he's bad. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. I have a hard time believing that a deer is not startled by a <laughs> fucking gigantic <laughs> robot. But here's a branch break from a hunter and just scurries and, yeah, off. Yeah, it's like immediately like, oh shit. And like what a what a weird little message to have in there. Like, I thought it was just gonna be teaching about death, which is okay, but like it was like this weird like death's okay, but guns are bad. Like So that, I mean it was a weird message I'll in the save middle of this. I'll save my gun comments, but uh <laughs> One of the trivia bits is that Brad Bird was partially inspired uh, to make the film because his sister uh, was murdered by her ex-husband with a gun. Mm. Um, his pitch for the film, I guess, uh, allegedly was, what if a gun had a soul and didn't want to be a gun? <laughs> <laughs> I just want to see this rifle that this boy carries and talks to. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. I mean, that makes sense then. I mean, I have my own like pre-existing disposition on that. So I guess this is probably when, now that I've been in, reminded about what the uh, extended version of this film is about, I understand why they took it out because the whole point that the giant doesn't want to be a gun, but his whole purpose is to be a gun seemed a little, you know, it would, if the original, the extended one or whatever, I don't know, a little too much uh, um, as far as the, the giant's moral obligation to not be a gun. So, from from my understanding, and I don't know if it was one or both of the scenes, but there there were scenes that weren't, like, cut, per se, as they were never animated. Like, he had a vision for them, but I don't know if they ran out of time or, or something. But there was at least one of the two scenes was strictly animated 
for the uh, uh, signature edition. Hmm. So they weren't made and then cut. Right. And those scenes were, that scene was when he, was it Dean, sees the, the dream that the giant has? Yeah. So I, 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 yeah, I guess I can go into that now. So one of the scenes happens uh, almost an hour into the film. The robot has gorged himself or whatever. Or no, it's after one of the little heartwarming scenes. Robot falls asleep. Dean is also asleep. Uh, TV's going, and then uh, the robot starts to have a nightmare where he flashes back to a bunch of scenes. One of them is the the deer dying scene, and then it goes back to its home planet, which is like, I guess, in the middle of a Terminator kind of thing. Krypton. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's where we learn he's like some assassin robot or some shit. It's Jason Bourne. Um, <laughs> and there's like an army of these assassin robots, and there's a whole bunch of destruction and whatnot. And then uh, the his like nightmare broadcasts onto the TV that Dean has left on, which startles him awake. And Dean is just like, what the shit was that? <laughs> and then like that scene cuts. But that's yeah, like that the weird little origin origin story of the robot, which didn't make it into the theatrical release. Hmm. Um, Interesting. The second scene, or the I, I guess the first of the two scenes, was uh, it's very minor. It happens 15 minutes into the film after Dean has done the squirrel dance. Um, it's like the next day, and Dean comes into the diner and is having kind of a flirty conversation with uh, with Hogarth's mom. Um, I don't know her and name. Jennifer Aniston. Annie, I think, is her name. Well, I knew it was Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> I think her name is actually Annie. Ah. But anyway, so... Annie Aniston? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so Dean's at the counter, and he's just like, y'all, sorry for the other day or whatever. Like, um, And then the mom is like, eh, it's not your fault. Like, Hogarth is super lonely, doesn't have friends or whatever. But he's a, he's a wonderful boy. And then they have like this kind of budding romance kind of thing, which which pays off in the end because it's kind of a... The romance in the uh, original is a little abrupt. Yeah. It's like all of a sudden they're like together. Um, but this scene sets that up for later. So I think it clears they up a lot just of included stuff. It. The, the, the original film is only like an hour and a half, including credits. So I think they had enough time to fit all, all in. I don't know why they took it out. The scenes in total were uh, a minute and 53 seconds, so. I think it is. it was a question of, like, budget and time, and also 90 minutes is long for the target demographic of this movie. Yeah. So. And then um, the other thing that scene introduces in particular is that, like, Hogarth has no friends, so when, at the end, he's, like, playing with the boys, I guess, like, it's, it, it hits a little better, I guess. I know. There's some Well, yeah, not everybody in there, this. Yeah. I mean, it's like uh, when you have PTSD with all your neighbors, something brings you together, you know, like a nuclear weapon being shot at your hometown. <laughs> Can we just talk about that? Okay. Like, so, first of all, they just start blasting the robot. And I think it's because the Mansley goes like, oh, he killed a kid. And they're like, okay, good, blast it. Like, after they watched it save a kid. But um, they, they trick... They trigger its, like, defensive mechanisms, which is pretty cool. I enjoyed that, it running around rampaging. And then he's like, order the nuke or whatever. And I was like, wow, this general can just order a nuke to be fired on a town in Maine. 
And then, <laughs> and then Kent Maine. They did alert the president. Oh, yeah. They just let him know that we're going to nuke Maine. Uh, but, like... This is the most unorganized army, like, I've ever seen. Like, no, they just showed up, caused chaos, and then at the end, after everything was done, they just left. They're like, all right, let's go home. Dude, the let's whole not, thing falls apart. Cause, right, like, let's not set up a, a nurse or, like, a doctor or, like, repair. Like, nope, infrastructure's all broken down. I think the giant fell through a couple buildings. <laughs> well, like, so they're going to order the nuke strike, right? Because Kent Manzi's like, oh, if we lead it away. And I was like, okay, we don't know about nuclear fallout yet, apparently. Um, but so he, they're going to fire it or something. And the robot, they go, oh my God, he's got a kid. I was like, you were about to nuke a town. And like, you were going <laughs> to hold you back. <laughs> and the robot's like 15 feet away. Like that was you leading it away. And so they're like, oh no. And then Kent Mansley just gets on the radio and just goes, fire the missile. Like there's no code word for the nukes. There's no like redundancies. It's just. As long as you hear on the radio, fire the missile. Like, <laughs> send it. And then, my last gripe with it is, Mansley's like, I don't want to die, and they stop him there, and they're like, no, you're going to die here with all of us. Like, it's a weird message for this. <laughs> but, like, it's like, uh-uh, you're dying here, too. And the general's just, like, so nonchalant that a nuke is about to land on everyone's heads here. He's just like, ah, you're going to die like a soldier. <laughs> yeah, so that's the most, uh, like... One of my biggest gripes with that was I, I don't think the general's response was quite adequate. No, it wasn't like, oh my god. It was like, eh, fuck it. I, it's like, you idiot, you're gonna kill us all. And then the townspeople are like oddly fine with it too. Yeah, like, right. Dean's just, the, the mom's just like makes a comment and Dean's just like, nah, it wouldn't matter anyway. It's because like, Dean's on heroin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's. Um, is Dean wrong though? It's just, yeah, I mean, I like. I don't know. I don't know. You, there should be a little more, like, emotional amping during that, but everyone's just like, ah, fuck it, we're dead. Yeah. Well, this is the generation that just barely had all returned from World War II, so they're they are apparently used to it at this point. The general is almost like, ah, I figured this is how I'd go. <laughs> <laughs> my, cu- my gripe with this scene, we're going to rewind a little bit. It's not so much what would happen if the nuke hit. It's that the sheer amount of sensors on both sides of the conflict <laughs> watching for a nuclear weapon launch. <laughs> when Moscow saw that we fucking launched a nuke off the coast of Maine as a, what is noted in the movie as a first strike capable submarine. Oh my God, I didn't even <laughs> think about that. Hundreds of fucking nukes are launching out of Russia. Well, they, don't they, have a, they don't have a satellite to watch. <laughs> <laughs> they had enough sensors in order to detect the giant when it first fell down out of the sky so oh my god <laughs> can't be that good because they couldn't find it afterwards <laughs> <laughs> oh i didn't even think about that where russia's like jesus christ <laughs> like, and they just launch on the united states and they're like we did it we stopped the nuke and they just look up and there's a hundred nukes coming for the united states <laughs> oh shit this cartoon definitely had like a one of the positives. I know we've been sh- kind of shitting on it a little bit, but one of the things that it does well is I like the uh, the sympathy you get for the giant throughout the movie. Like when uh, Dean yells at it to go away, it's heartbreaking to see this giant that wants to be Superman. It's like you know, it's just like a kid being like scorned and running off into the field. Dude, I loved the feel good bits. Like even mm-hmm. uh, he's like suddenly has remembered how to fly. Right. Oh yeah. And. 
Hogarth is like, you know, put an arm out like Superman. It's just like so adorable. And <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but like that ending scene where like he's realizing this is his chance to be Superman and like he looks up and he, he goes, man, I was chopping some onions over here. It was yeah, the call, <laughs> the call back to Hogarth's line. Like you can be whatever you, you know, you decide to be. It's getting just, me right fucking now. Do you, uh, do you think the robot knew he was going to die, or do you think he was just being cool flying up there? <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know the Superman line you did in the last episode? <laughs> when, uh, yeah, so yeah, he's going up toward the, the rocket, and um, out of Vin Diesel's beautiful lips comes the words, <laughs> Superman. <laughs> <laughs> and then he promptly gets disintegrated. <laughs> but yeah, I... It's always good when a movie, because it means that they made the characters something that you actually like feel for, you identify, like th- it, there's something to attach to if you actually get emotional when it's time for that character to like fulfill their role, reach their arc, you know, and this movie did that, man. I, it's been a while since you're just like, oh, he's just going to go be a hero. <laughs> like... It's good. a damn shame because when I you know when I was young watching this, I was really bored, honestly. I remember being bored with the movie. And I look back now and I'm just like, you idiot, this movie's awesome. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but I also loved like the third Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles where they go back to like feudal China. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Youth is wasted on the young and children's movies are wasted on children. <laughs> on Shane. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're they're hitting right where they need to with Shane. <laughs> God, you think the uh, the the alien overlords that built the Iron Giant fucked up by giving it emotions? Like that's kind of cruel to actually put feelings in this assassin robot. I mean, I I saw that as a a glitch, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, or do you think we- that, that they were actually like metal people on this other planet? What? Uh, they appeared to be citizens from the from the callback in the dream. It's like from I didn't Mars, see, like, right, or something. They weren't like murdering humans. They were like, I like, I don't know what they were fighting, honestly. Um, they just were destroying buildings. But anyway, what if um, he was just a probe that malfunctioned and like he was just a scout sent to Earth and it just malfunctioned and there's literally an armada on its way. Well, he he's just a scout for the space bat angel dragon. Yeah. <laughs> So the I think it was uh like a the emotion portion was caused by the dent in its head because you see like he goes into blind rage which pops the dent back out and then he's super killer robot again and then they do the trope which it really I I liked in this particular instance where like the emotional connection little child is like no remember me like you have to like, have oh, yeah. it yeah yeah and so I think but it the was dent uh, doesn't go back in then so. You- he apparently no, has his own ability to think. The circuitry was formed, yeah. Mike. <laughs> he, he is sentient. He has a soul. Yeah, I don't think there was a doubt of of sentience, per se. I don't know. I'm just saying, that's, just... that's a cock-up on the alien side. Like, I'm going to make a super <laughs> badass killing robot. I don't want it to suddenly get attached to a, a kid on the planet I sent it to, and my whole mission gets foobar. Well, yeah, we saw that in iRobot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the nice thing about having your one of your characters be from outer space and be, is you really don't have to follow any rules 
It's kind of like something being created by magic. It could do whatever you want Whoa. it to do. Plus, <laughs> it's kind of like Superman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> I, yeah, I just love the little references to like the whole Superman underlying plot. Like it, it was great. Yep, he drops his Superman at like he's a, basically a child. You know, he's learning what he wants to be, and he wants to be Superman. Like it's just. It's. I mean, it's a Brad Bird film. Have we seen a Brad Bird film? Brad yes, Bird. We've seen Incredibles. I know, but Incredibles. That we, I was ratted. before. I was rudely interrupted. I was gonna say that we didn't like. Oh. Yeah, The Incredibles. <laughs> but that's number four on my list. I'm just gonna. <laughs> Where is that in relation to the King speech, though? Okay, let's look. <laughs> it's number six on your list. Did you guys get all the references on uh, Dean's newspaper throughout the movie? Yeah, I got a shit ton of trivia for this when we get there. Yeah, that was, I, I didn't notice it until uh, when they're at the lake scene and uh, the giant jumps into the lake doing a cannonball and it makes a giant tidal wave take like hits on Dean on the shore. Mm-hmm. And on the newspaper, the headline is like impending di- doom or disaster or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. And if you go back throughout the film, Dean's reading newspapers. There's always a, a clip on the newspaper that has something to do with what the scene is. Huh. Yeah. I did not notice that. Okay. So I guess we get into some trivia. Let's do it. This is going to be a short cast. Short movie, short podcast. Yeah. This is my goal. I want a recording of the podcast of the movie to be shorter than the movie. So <laughs> we've got about 20 minutes. No, we got we to gotta pad that. The viewers have an expectation. <laughs> so the trivia. <laughs> um, uh, there's one more scene in the signature edition. Uh, it was altered, not re, uh, not added. It's uh, kind of weird. Like I don't, I don't know why this was such a big deal, but the theatrical version. There's a when the hand, the detached hand, is in the house, and uh, really cute scene again where yeah. uh, Hogar's trying to like hide it from the mm-hmm. big government man. Um, at one point, the hand is watching TV, and there's a commercial on the TV for Mapo cereal. Uh, the original yeah. cut was supposed to be a ad for the Disneyland uh, Tomorrowland attraction. Um, but they had a rights issue with Disney, which after it was like released, they fixed. And then he put in the thing in there. I don't know if he was like looking super far into the future. It's like, I'm going to, one day I'm going to make a Tomorrowland movie, but, um, (laughs) Disney super litigious. No way. (laughs) I think, uh, I'm getting the feeling that, um, bird is really into that already. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if he was planning on making a Tomorrowland but he, he established early on that he, he's really into the 50s. He likes Superman. He likes comics. Like, he, all of his stuff kind of is similar to that, The Incredibles, you know what I mean? So yeah, it's not sure. too far-fetched that he ended up making uh, Tomorrowland. I mean, he's probably he was thinking about it. I, I wouldn't imagine he wouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, just weird hill to die on, but that's that was one of the changes. <laughs> <laughs> Brad Bird was born in 1957. He's so. just... Oh, he's born on the on fifty seven. I was gonna, I was gonna say like it feels like he's almost just like recreating his childhood, but I guess he wouldn't have been born yet, so that doesn't track. Uh, let's see, Hogarth's father. I mean, there's a, like, I think we did the same thing in like Incredibles and a lot of the, uh, other animated movies of like little details that really are insignificant, but just at, keep adding to the collective. I did catch the Hogarth's um, father thing because they show the picture in the room, right? Yeah, and he's a he was a fighter pilot. Yeah, and you assume in Korea probably. That, yeah. That's probably why Hogarth can withstand so many G's. Ah, <laughs> he's in yeah. the blood. 
<laughs> but I like it because that was his helmet, right? It was his father's. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. That helmet shows up a bunch of times and is and is at one point a key like plot device too when he like is being w- creepily watched by fucking Kent. Yeah. There was some real creepy shit. And the mother's totally yeah, unfazed by any of it. She's just glad to get some extra rent. Yeah, there's a. I don't know if this was a product of the times, but there was a lot of blind trusting of strangers. This random man really has taken interest to my young nine-year-old boy and now wants to move <laughs> in. I don't see a problem here. Hey, take it. Don't leave without him. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about the inconsistencies of the mother here. She works all night, works all day. I never once saw her sleep. Like, she was just making breakfast for people when they woke up, showing up before they went to bed. Like, she's probably a robot. <laughs> yeah. This film was originally conceptualized as a musical. I'll let that soak in for a second. I can see. I um, want to see Ben Diesel sing. <laughs> one of the producers, or executive producers for the film was uh, Pete Townsend from The Who. Oh. And he, he initially developed this, like film as a musical um from his like concept album titled the iron man and then later they were like that's stupid we're, we should make it an animated film <laughs> that's dumb <laughs> get out of here pete uh let's see we already went over the the book being nothing like no. digressing another digression from the book is that it's called the iron giant which is also to avoid marvel uh copyrights so marvel uh-huh. is fucking shit up even even before the the <laughs> Nonstop spam of Avengers movies. Yeah. We missed some good opportunities, uh, in my opinion, because some of the original considerations for the voice were Peter Cullen, Sean Connery. Oh. Uh, <laughs> God, of course. Superman. <laughs> yeah, you know as Sean Connery, he would have one line, and he wouldn't even give a shit saying it. He would just, Superman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets better. Um, one of the other considerations was Frank Welker, who does the voice of Scooby-Doo. <laughs> <laughs> and then the missed opportunity, in my opinion, was James Earl Jones. Oh, that would have been epic. That, that would have been so good. When you first said Scooby-Doo, I thought of Shaggy. I was like, like oh, no, man, I'm a giant. <laughs> <laughs> the U.S. government's coming, man. <laughs> I'm not a gun, man. I'm not a gun. <laughs> Did James Earl Jones do the uh, narration for um, everything? So, uh, War of the Worlds. That was the, Morgan Freeman. You're talking about was, the Tom Cruise one? Yeah, yeah. That was James. Mm-mm. Yeah, that was Morgan Freeman. Ah. Um, <clears throat> oh, wow. There's a lot of people that were considered for all the roles. Tommy Lee Jones, Alec Baldwin, Burt Reynolds for uh, Kent Mansley. I could see Tommy Lee. Or, or Patrick Stewart. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so sick of this giant. <laughs> Patrick Stewart for who? Uh, Kent Mansley. Oh, my God. <laughs> the the general, they, they considered Arlie Ermey, Jack Nicholson, and Kirk Douglas. Oh, Arlie Ermey would have been epic. Yeah. The, I mean, I even like, those three are a huge spread. I feel like they just picked a bunch of people and threw it at the wall. Like, that's everybody at that point. Like, consideration. <laughs> Steve Martin or Robin Williams for Dean? Robin Williams for Dean? I could see that. I It would be yeah. a wholly different character, but yeah. I oh, I like it. But I, I liked Harry Connick Jr. I think he sounded like a Dean, like Dean that character should. I don't know. He, I like Dean. No, I, I don't have any complaints with any of the, the casting. Yeah, I did well. 
I also like that Dean was just like a genuinely good dude through the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. He was just a good guy. Yeah. Um, more trivia. This this calls back to Brad Bird's like childhood psychopathy. <laughs> psychopathy, is that how you say it? Yeah, sure. Oh what? <laughs> Psycho psychopathness. Oh, psychopathy. Uh, the pathology <laughs> yeah, of his psycho. <laughs> anyway, he was a fucking psychopath. In one of the scenes, uh the scene when Hogarth is watching the scary movie in the fort. He he creates a turbo Twinkie, which is you <laughs> jam fucking uh, whipped cream from a can injected into a Twinkie. My God! And that was something that Brad Bird did as a kid. Wow! And the animators were like, "What the fuck? What are you, what are you talking <laughs> I, I, about?" So he had to like he had to demonstrate it. <laughs> and the head animator is quoted as saying, "Quote: It was not very delicious." <laughs> It was it was thoroughly <laughs> disgusting. Get your diabetes out yeah. of here. Dude, there's some like real nerd shit with this this trivia too. Like in case you guys were wondering, the freight train that runs into the giant is being pulled by an Alco four six four streamlined Hudson passenger oh, locomotive. Good. I wasn't one raced. You know what? I'm calling bullshit whoever wrote that. I could write a trivia on the goddamn website and be like, Oh, it was the SG seven thousand diner. And you know how it went is like they were, uh, like they're animating and they're like, well, we need a train. All right. Someone, I mean, it's 1999. They don't have Google or whatever, but go to the library, get a book full of trains from the fifties and just draw one. Yeah. (laughs) Did you mention that Arnold Schwarzenegger was also considered for Kent Mansley? My sweet. What? Jesus. (laughs) Yeah. No, I'm a xenophobic. American agent with Schwarzenegger's. <laughs> Listen here, I'm telling you, Austrian the goddamn accent. robots in the forest. It's in the goddamn trees. <laughs> <laughs> I want Arnold would be better as the general. I need Patrick Stewart as the bad guy. Do <laughs> <laughs> you are you going through like the IMDb trivia page? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a while since I looked at IMDb imdb trivia page I'm like some of the shit in here is so bad it's like oh the giant is mad when they're playing then he's forced to be a tomo he wants to play superman the giant decides to be superman as he impacts with the nuclear missile I'm like, that's not trivia that's just the plot yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like did you know the iron giant's about a boy meeting a giant <laughs> there's like so many dumb little things like oh if you look at the license plate one of the it says a113 which is an inside joke from California Institute of the Arts graduates. <laughs> Trivia. This film is in the official top 250 narrative feature <laughs> films on Letterboxd. What? <laughs> Did you know the Iron Giant is actually not made of iron? He's actually more of a stainless steel composite. <laughs> aluminum alloy pyrolite blend. <laughs> yeah, the studio thought that that wouldn't flow off the tongue as, as easily. <laughs> Goddamn executives meddling and everything. Ha, meddling. (laughs) (laughs) This podcast is going to be people looking around the room like, this sucks and we're laughing our asses off. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, One interesting uh, technology bit of trivia is uh, the the film was traditionally animated, as it was the style of the time, but the Iron Giant himself was digitally animated. Hmm. And it was... He does have, like, a Uncanny Valley kind of feel compared yeah. to the rest of the set. And it was funny because they... The computer animation is, like, so superior <laughs> that they had a program, like, making the mouth movements a little bit off so it wouldn't look, like, too perfect in comparison to the rest of the characters. <laughs> they had so they to, made their shit... They made it look shittier than it actually was. <laughs> y- 
yeah. <laughs> this is too good. But yeah. Anyway, on to box office, Jack. How'd it do? Yeah. Um. So yeah, critical reception, box office type stuff. This was um. This movie was well received overall. Like critics liked it. Um, it won a variety of awards. Um, I don't think it was ever like on the Oscar circuit, but it got like a sort of a lot of like children's uh, awards or animated movie awards, that kind of stuff. Um, but it kind of failed at the box office. Oh yeah. Um, it flopped pretty bad. It cost like fifty million and made thirty million. And I think that's including like home sales later. Um, so it was it was hamstrung though because it released on the same day as the Sixth Sense. Mm. Yeah, but kids aren't going to see the Sixth Sense. They're going to see the Iron Giant. Yeah, but the rest of the world was watching the Sixth Sense. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying. Uh, if I were, you know, thirty three year old Mike in nineteen ninety nine, I don't think I would go see the Iron Giant either. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, marketed poorly, uh, up against you know tough stuff, but it it kind of uh, really sort of um, hit its stride or sort of established its um, its following later. It it was kind of funny, you know. It, it's like a cult classic movie now, where it, it really picked up steam later on. I'm not exactly sure over what time period that kind of happened, but it was not until well after it was in theaters to the point where, you know, when we're talking about like remastered stuff and like these added scenes and, you know, the whatever, right? Like those are from like 2016, I think. So it long, long time before it kind of came back into the limelight. Alrighty. So let's, um, let's kind of finish it out and get to the most important part which is where do we rank the movie now this is uh, movie number 44 for us um yeah i think this will be interesting i think to see where people put it yeah let's see all uh june why don't you go ahead and go first okay um i think this is actually relatively easy for me i'm gonna throw it at number three between big fish and blade runner yeah really yeah i really I really liked it. Um, I'm kind of mad at myself for not liking it, you know, as younger or watching it in the last however many, fuck, 20 whatever years. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just like, wow. it hit all the right spots. It was pretty tight overall. And like, I yeah, really entertaining. Wow. That's, I'm surprised. Oh. Yeah. Shane, where do you yeah, put it? You didn't it? get to watch it as a kid, but now you get to watch it as an adult. This yeah yeah this so this is a weird one. First of all, it's an hour and a half. Love that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, second, I think on this list, it's the only other movie. Other, like it didn't hit me as hard as Big Fish. Big Fish, I was crying like I was just born. Like, but this film made me have a real emotional like whew, at the end there, which is a plus. So I'm gonna put it. Made you feel. Yeah. At number 11 under La La Land. I, I, it's just a very different movie than a lot of the movies on here, but it's a, it's a good movie. So I like, I, I couldn't put it at three, but yeah, that's where I'm putting it. 11. What about you, Mike? Uh, I actually had a difficult time trying to figure out where this one was yeah. going to go. Um, mainly because I did feel really bored just in the most recent viewing of the film halfway through I kind of lost interest 
And that might have to do with the fact that I've seen it so many times. Um, but the nostalgic factor is real important with this film. It's always one that I remember liking and I continue to like it even now. Uh, but this last time around, it just didn't hit as hard as it used to. I don't know. Maybe I'm getting callous in my older age. Um, that all being said, it goes underneath uh, Maltese Falcon above her at number six for me. You also really liked Rope. I have no idea what that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at your list and I was like, whoa, really? And I look at ours, it's like at the bottom, and then yours is like number seven. <laughs> but yeah, the pure nostalgic factor puts us at the top of my list. Nice. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna put it at twenty-three. Jack, wow. Jack has no heart. And it's one of those things where I, I've seen it before and I remember it being like super moving, and I remember it being like super well constructed you know and like this tight movie and like you know it was well made and it was well you know done and the rain was good but like i kept waiting for that moment where it would like hit me and it just didn't so you so you would rather watch colonel sanders try to prove who killed kennedy than than this so i i honestly <laughs> put it lower um above the born ultimatum until I thought about it a bit more. But yeah, even even JFK had that weird like fever dream stuff where and don't talk shit on me, you've got JFK at twelve. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if 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 I had seen this movie for the first time uh today, I think I would have put it a lot lower on my list. That's fair. Wait, you lower? Lower. Oh. That's not fair. <laughs> it's yeah i don't know i like i i can 100 percent acknowledge like why everyone's putting it super high because if i were just going off of like maybe the the sentiment of the first few times i watched it i would do the same but i, I just didn't i don't know so apparently yeah, i'm kind of the opposite of you mike because I, I literally the last time i saw this was in 99 like and I don't even think I watched it. I mean, I was a kid and like, I'm probably doing other shit, but, um, so that I'm kind of treating this as my first time watching it. And it was just like, it was refreshing compared to some of the other trash that we've seen. <laughs> um, Look, looking at you, who's afraid of Virginia Wolf. I agree that with, uh, with both you and Shane, actually, that the, that, uh, how long it was, um, how straightforward it was, it was, it was the correct word is refreshing. Like you said, it was not. Didn't have any bullshit or bells and whistles. It was just a good watch. It it was like not drinking a fancy cocktail, but just like a really good cold Coca-Cola. You're just like, that was nice. Just nice, short, sweet. It really did drag you back to the 50s. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So final verdict, do you recommend watching it, June? Yes, absolutely. Shane? Yeah. Yeah, you should watch it. Bring a tissue. Mike? Yep, 100%. Yep, and great movie. Got gotta agree, it's it's worth a watch. Well, that's a uh, iron. And it's giant. fun for everybody. It's not just a kids movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's got a little bit for everyone, which is always a good sign of an animated film. Thanks, Brad Bird. Thanks, you did it again. <laughs> now, after this one, I think we're stepping back a bit in time to Brief Encounter, which is actually a movie I know nothing about. I've never heard of that movie. It's a 1945 movie with the lamest tagline. Meeting a stranger in a railway station, a woman is tempted to cheat on her husband. Oh, God. Watch us love <laughs> this film. 
<laughs> is that what they put on the poster? Is that what just Wikipedia says? That is what IMDb has as their tagline. 45, wow, you said? Black and white? Yep. Do we know any of the actors? Uh, Celia Johnson, Trevor Howard, Stanley Holloway. So, no. No. <laughs> hey, you know what? Like, there's been a few times I've been like, oh, Jesus Christ. And then I watch these, like, old films and I go, that was really good. So, maybe. Yeah, dude. Out of the Past was yeah, like. Yeah, that was a shocker. Surprisingly good. Yeah. yeah. So. All righty. Which well, one was we'll, Out of the uh, Past? Catch you for that. Did you just ask which one was Out of the Past? <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this film sounds a lot like, uh, what was the. The, the one where she cheats with uh, Richard Greer and he like temptation thanks for listening everybody like and subscribe <laughs> <laughs> they have sex in a bathroom <laughs> <laughs>